From AZPM, this is Arizona Spotlight. I'm Christopher Conover, sitting in for Mark McLemore. Coming up, two pieces of American history. Barbie and the atomic bomb face off at the box office this weekend to make what some in pop culture are calling Barbenheimer. We learn about an effort to reduce waste and boost income from a favorite drink in Mexico. And we follow the tracks of an extinct species of giant bear. We hear from Mike Stark about chasing the ghost bear on the trail of America's lost super beast. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. This weekend, two blockbuster films premiere on the same date. An unusual phenomenon. Moviegoers have dubbed the event of the summer Barbenheimer, with plans to see both Warner Brothers' Barbie and Universal Pictures' Oppenheimer in one day. The double feature marks a shift in industry standards. While both dramatically different films appeal to diverse audiences, both aim to offer an immersive experience with two mid-century icons who shaped history at the center. Katya Mendoza brings us the story. The year is 1997. I'm on a road trip with my family, and I'm three years old. I ask the grown-ups to play my favorite song on repeat. Not again, my boy cousin say. 26 years later, it's 2023, and I'm listening to the radio on my way to work. A core memory is unlocked. If you're like me, you played with Barbies growing up. Although I didn't resemble the leggy blonde beauty, I was able to use my imagination. A childhood rite of passage. Barbie is more than a fashion icon. She inspires everyone that she can be who she wants to be, while embracing femininity. The intention behind her creation in 1959 was to show young girls and women that they had options. Still, Barbie's legacy hasn't always been a good one. Jennifer Stevens Aubrey, communications professor at the U of A, says historically, there has been a problematic idealization of feminine beauty. It is, you know, unrealistic, unattainable, and unhealthy in real life. She says there's a new current moment of art and diversity, like Barbie core. Thanks are due to the upcoming movie. You know, the Barbie core movement and Mattel's merchandising marketing line has been focused on different forms of, of diversity as well. You know, like ability, disability, um, race, uh, body size. I mean, there, there are a variety of things that they're they're working to be more inclusive around. It's hard to miss the Barbie movie's marketing. Barbie pink is everywhere. Margot Robbie's press tour wardrobe consists of archival Barbie looks, and there's even a rentable Airbnb Barbie Malibu dream house. Barbie core is here to stay. Hope Sampara, fashion industry science professor at the U of A, says fashion trends are always relative to what's going on in either politics, pop culture, or music. So the fact that Barbie is a fashion icon, it just only makes sense that, you know, we would start to see that kind of trending in fashion moving forward. She says looks may appear more functional or adaptive in design, and we just might see more Barbie pink through next spring and summer. Everything in fashion has been done before. You just get like a different spin on it. But what I think they've done is kind of elevated this. We call it like the zeitgeist. So something is in fashion and 
um, kind of on trend at a specific time. So even if you see it again, it's never going to be in that same place and time. Um, so it's going to be received different. On the other side of the coin, Stevens says that those who aspire to achieve this version of beauty might still be criticized. I think it's really important to kind of address cultural sexism more broadly. I do think it's really important to to kind of do away with the idea that femininity is somehow, you know, is not as good as masculinity. And if we want to uh, like really address sexism, I think we have to stop with that like evaluative view of femininity versus masculinity. They're they're two different constructs. They're two different ideas. Not one one can't we can't consider one better than the other if we're going to try to live in a more inclusive, less sexist, less misogynistic world. The marketing campaign for the movie has been years in the making. Mattel and Warner Brothers have zeroed in on nostalgia, on top of efforts to appeal to both millennial and Gen Z audiences through brand integration. Aubrey says the filmmakers have done their homework. The Gen Z generation wants inclusivity. They want diversity. They're they're the ones who are going to be the gatekeepers uh, for Barbie in the future. Jeff Yance, program director at the Loft Cinema, says Barbie is a bigger part of most people's lives. To have grown up with Barbie and have had Barbies, there's there's an automatic desire to go see that, that I think. Given the character's decades-long history, it is surprising to find that it is just barely hitting theaters. Greta Gerwig is trying to make a bigger statement and not just be like service to the product, but still doing that. And that's a really delicate balance, like doing both at the same time. Many film fans have noticed that Warner Brothers' Barbie premieres on the same date as Universal Pictures' Oppenheimer. I feel like it's coincidental that they're both about mid-century American cultural figures, but it's a it's a great interesting coincidence. Uh, and that, that audiences have picked up on that, I think is really fun. Thus, Barbenheimer. Yance says summer blockbusters tend to be about escapism and fun, fictional characters or intellectual property, which the Barbie film is. Not typical for a summer film to be about a real person, uh, particularly one who had such a kind of a heavy impact on the world. uh, And that's going to be grappling with a lot of very serious issues like what I find interesting about Oppenheimer as the story is the whole idea of kind of the the joy of scientific achievement, but then also grappling with the, the kind of horrific consequences of scientific achievement and what that did to the world. And to him, the man, Robert Oppenheimer, he had a lot of problems with what he had done later. The two vastly different films have different tones and even different palettes. Barbie offers pink and fun and feminist undertones, whereas parts of Oppenheimer are shot in black and white and about one of the most traumatizing technological developments in the history of the world. Yance says the director of Oppenheimer, Christopher Nolan, has put a certain amount of faith in his audience because the movie's runtime is three hours long. Because he's a trademark filmmaker now, like Wes Anderson is sort of a trademark filmmaker, or Quentin Tarantino, or Martin Scorsese. There are very few filmmakers who are stars, and I think Christopher Nolan is one of them. Uh, I like to think of Greta Gerwig as one also. It's actually surprising that the Loft Cinema isn't showing Barbie, considering it has featured Gerwig's indie work in the past. Still, this weekend is quite special for the Loft. We were approached 
months ago by Universal about showing Oppenheimer on 70 millimeter because they know we're one of the few theaters that can show it. Nolan is known for his big, epic, aesthetic, or trademark. Think The Dark Knight, Batman trilogy, Interstellar, or Dunkirk. He is the one that drives the creation of the prints because most of his films have been released in 70 millimeter film because he specifically wants that and he shoots them in that format. So they, they look different uh, based on the way they're shot. They're intended to look different. 70 millimeter celluloid film is rare and known as the gold standard of film exhibition. All theaters used to show for 100, uh, 100 years since film began until everything went digital about 10 years ago. It is a wider and larger film format, which enables more information on it and more light to shine through, allowing brighter images and better sound depth. When people talk about 70, they talk about it being more immersive because you feel like you're in the film. It envelops you in a, in a different way. It's, it's sort of emotional and psychological. Uh, but you really do feel it when you're watching it. It feels different than digital, uh, which doesn't take away from the digital experience. But I always I like to encourage people, if you can, if you have the, the resources and the time and the energy to do it, to watch both, to maybe go see Oppenheimer in 70 millimeter and then watch it somewhere else digitally and just see for yourself what the difference is because you do see it. Jens says he thinks it's fun that people are drawing connections between the two films, creating memes, t-shirts, and itineraries on how the films should be watched. Both protagonists, depending on who you ask, are based on real cultural figures from the 40s and 50s who changed American history in different ways. Even the projection team at The Loft is looking forward to this weekend. On Wednesday morning, the female-led projection team did a dry run-through with the 70-millimeter film reels. Oppenheimer has nine reels, although the first two were missing upon delivery. Haley McFeely, the projection manager at The Loft, says The Loft wants to prioritize movies they can get on actual film. When we do a dry run, um, we do this for every film print that we get, 35 or 70, basically just a quality check of everything. Um, with this print, it's brand new. They made it just for the theater, so we know the quality is going to be great. The film reels are large and heavy and weigh somewhere between 40 and 50 pounds. Once assembled, the reels are placed on a platter for projection. At the end of each reels, there is a cigarette burn, which is a little circle mark in the top right corner of the frame. Um, there's two of them, and they are eight seconds apart. On the first one, um, you start the motor of the projector, and then on the second one, you actually switch over to the other projector. Um, we also have a time code readout on our um, digital sound processor that tells us when we're getting close to the end of it. But yeah, you still have to be up here watching and paying attention the entire time to switch over. And if you don't do it, people in the theater will know. It's very obvious if you switch over badly or if you switch over late or early. The Loft is premiering Oppenheimer one day early and has already sold out. Yance says the art house is looking forward to opening weekend. Nolan films tend to have a, more of a slow burn and they play for a long time in theaters uh, as people discover them and see them again. Uh, and it's also aimed at a slightly older demographic who generally doesn't swarm theaters on opening weekend. Uh, so I think that bodes well for Oppenheimer's longevity in theaters as more people find it. Barbie is projected to earn over $100 million at the box office this weekend, which could be twice as much as Oppenheimer. Whichever film moviegoers find themselves watching first, there's something special to be said of the degree of community engagement leading up to this Friday.
I think it's, it's really just a sign that people are hungry for more interaction with film. Uh, and you wouldn't get this if you were only streaming these two films at home because you would be isolated in your experience, but this is about going out and dressing up. I suspect people will dress up more for Barbie than they'll dress up for Oppenheimer. <laughs> but I would love to see people give it a shot to try and dress up like Oppenheimer. I mean, he had a, he had a bit of a look. I'm Christopher Conover, sitting in for Mark McLemore. Throughout Mexico, agave plants are used to make distillates like tequila, mezcal, and Sonora's Bacanora. But there are other products that can be made with the plants also. From the Fronteras desk, Kendall Blust brings us this story about a new project using fiber from agave leaves to reduce waste and bring new income to rural communities. That's the sound of a machine stripping agave leaves, separating the long, thick fibers from the green flesh. It's part of a pilot project aimed at reducing waste in Sonora's budding bacanora industry by using its byproducts. We understand that the agave distillate production industry wastes up to 70 to 80 percent of their base material. That's conservation biologist Valeria Cañedo. I'm a co-founder and vice president of Centro de Coloración para la Ciencia y Cultura, which it means Collaboration Center for Science and Culture. Known as CENCO, the center is working to protect both bats and agave in Sonora by teaming up with Bacanora producers to set guidelines for sustainable management. Bacanora is produced much the same way as its better-known cousins, tequila and mezcal. The plant's heart, or piña, is harvested, roasted, fermented, and distilled. The rest of the plant is discarded. Cañedo and her team want to use those discarded parts and boost incomes in rural mountain communities where the spirit is typically produced. And that's how we created the project, which is empowerment of rural women through the elaboration of Bacanora byproducts. In some parts of Mexico, efforts are already underway to utilize agave leaves, mashed agave hearts left over after distillation known as begaso, and other waste. There's a company making agave fiber paper for labels on tequila bottles. Others are using the plants to make adobe-style bricks, bioplastics and biofuel, fertilizer, and animal feed. But in Sonora, nearly 80 years of prohibition on Bacanora stifled that kind of innovation. I always say the Bacanora industry is still in diapers. On a sunny afternoon, Osvaldo Coronado takes us on a tour of his family's ranch on the outskirts of the small town of Matepe, filled with row upon row of agave. Rescate a las tradiciones ancestrales. He says he's restoring ancestral traditions tamped down by Sonora's long prohibition. It's a way to honor his grandparents and his mother, who would travel into the mountains to find agave and produce bacanora in makeshift stills hidden along arroyos and in caves in the Sierra Madre Occidental, risking arrest or even death for producing the spirit. It's ensayo y error. Ensayo y error porque no me dejan los papeles los abuelos. <laughs> He calls it a process of trial and error. His grandparents didn't leave him instructions for their clandestine process. And as he relearns their traditions, he's working with Senko to incorporate sustainable practices. Eso es cuidar el medio ambiente. Yo celebro 
Yo celebro de verdad enormemente. Vianney del Río is a researcher and the new director of Sonora's Bacanora Regulatory Council. In 2019, she led a pilot project using agave leaf fiber in southern Sonora that helped guide Senko's work, and she celebrates their efforts. La historia de los agaves en México es una historia muy vasta. Agave has a long history in Mexico, she says, and from the beginning, indigenous peoples used the whole plant. She says relearning those practices is essential. Sustentabilidad, sostenibilidad. For sustainability. Una oportunidad económica muy buena. Rural economies and reaffirming the crucial role women have always played in Bacanora production. La mujer era indispensable. Now, women are the ones leading innovation in the use of Bacanora byproducts. Pues yo me llamo María Luisa Bracamontes Angulo. Francisca Córdoba Espinosa. María Luisa Bracamontes and Francisca Córdoba are heading up Senko's Agave Fiber Project. Queremos que nos vaya bien. <laughs> Córdoba says she hopes it's a success. Both widows in their 60s, the women are working with agave as a way to bring in some extra money and because of their love for the spirit. Now they collect discarded agave leaves and carry them to a large ramada where they cut off the spines, then don gloves and face shields before running the leaves through the heavy machine that removes the flesh. They wash the fibers and let them dry in the sun before forming them into estropajos, organic scrubbers that can be used for dishes, cleaning house, or maybe as a miracle pedicure product, they laugh. It's physically demanding work. But Córdoba says they love it. They're used to working in the heat. And if all goes to plan, soon they'll start teaching other women about creating a business out of agave byproducts. I'm Kendall Blust reporting from Matape. Mike Stark is a former journalist and the creative director at the Center for Biological Diversity. He's passionate about ecology. And to write his book, he had to hike and explore caves in some remote and inhospitable places. Arizona Spotlight host Mark McLemore spoke with him last year about chasing the ghost bear on the trail of America's lost super beast. Before their conversation, Mike read an excerpt from the book. No one stumbles across Potter Creek Cave. Tucked into a mountainside high above Shasta Lake in Northern California, it's a hidden place, a hole fit into a limestone hill that's so well concealed by trees and thick bushes that you don't know you've arrived until you're practically on its front doorstep. Inside are narrow, twisting passages, pits, galleries of pale stalactites, slick walls, bats, millipedes, eyeless spiders, and the kind of deep darkness that leaves you disoriented and trying to remember why anyone would ever willingly part with the daylight. It's perfect for secrets. Plenty had come to Potter Creek Cave before me, people and animals alike. The chambers and galleries once housed a staggering trove of bones, numbering in the thousands, representing at least 52 species. Animals still extant were well represented in the fragments, including rats, bats, deer, and rattlesnakes. Scattered among the debris and bound by the blackness for thousands of years were also the remains of more than 20 extinct species, exotic and familiar. Camels, horses, giant sloths, ancient bison, dire wolves, mammoths, and mastodons. 
vestiges all from the Pleistocene, the epoch from roughly 2.6 million years ago to 11,700 years ago, famous for its massive intermittent glaciers that draped over much of North America, and for the oddball assortment of oversized outlandish creatures that stalked the landscape. Most of the extinct species found in the cave were already known to scientists by the time they were discovered in the late 1800s and early 1900s. One was not. Its discovery in the form of a roughed-up skull missing its lower jaw was the first sign of the biggest flesh-eating mammal ever to walk the continent. The largest of its kind, the males, stood taller than polar bears and the mighty brown bears of Alaska and possessed jaws powerful enough to annihilate skulls and snap bones like dry twigs. On all fours, the biggest stared a six-foot person in the face. On its hind legs, it towered ten feet or more and could reach its front paws up to fifteen feet. It sported claws like knife blades and teeth built for tearing and shredding. Trifling with this bear could certainly come with ugly, often life-ending results. Any Ice Age person lucky enough to survive an encounter would have returned to their family with a story equal parts terror, adrenaline, and awe. No one alive knows today what its roar sounded like, but it's safe to assume it curdled bowels and triggered a flight response like no other. It's no wonder that some have speculated the mere presence of this barely believable bear in the far north may have delayed the arrival of people in the interior of North America for hundreds, perhaps thousands of years. Of all the animals that you could have gone chasing, why this bear? Well, these bears were forgotten characters from the Pleistocene. Uh, When we think about this time uh, in the Earth's history, we often think of mammoths and mastodons and the saber-toothed tigers and lions, uh, camels, other species. But this giant short-faced bear has kind of been lost to our memory for a long time. And bears have always been a very special species to me. When I'm out in the wild, when I'm hiking, I've always got my ear out for the crack of a twig that maybe is going to signify a bear in our midst. Or, you know, I love seeing in places like Yellowstone where you can see the, the rump of a bear on a ridge and know that this is you're in their place, you're in their habitat. And so all growing up and in my adult life, Uh, Being in the presence of bears has always been really special to me. What are some of its unique biological adaptations? Well, all bears are incredible. All bears are uh, highly adaptable, incredible improvisers on the landscape where they live. The giant short-faced bear was different than uh, a lot of the bears that we know. Is a little bit more slender, is a little bit more cat-like or even hyena-like in some ways. Um, So it doesn't look like a really big grizzly bear. Um, It doesn't really even look like a polar bear necessarily. And so um, they had longer legs. They had uh, shorter snouts. And so those longer legs allowed them to travel across the landscape farther distances in search of food. I think they had incredible noses like all bears do. Um, And so this was really a species that was built for um, long-range travel in search of food. And then when it got to um, wherever it was going to be, finding food it can eat and adapting to the local plants or or animals. Can you tell us a little about the trip that you took, the places you visited while you were researching this bear? The first place I went, I wanted to see uh, where this bear first showed up um, for people, where the first specimen was found. And so uh, my first trip was to Northern California to Potter Creek Cave. 
And it was a long rainy day uh, hiking up this um, side of this mountain to get to the cave's entrance. And then um, inside deep into the cave, there was a big dark pit where for thousands of years, animals had been falling into the pit from a hole in the surface and um, spending their last moments there down there in the dark. Uh, and so among them were giant short-faced bears. And um, that's where the first skull was found in 1879. And I went to Rochester, Indiana. That was where the uh, most complete specimen has ever been found. Um, that was back in 1967 where a gas crew was installing a, a valve on a pipeline and were digging around in the muck and suddenly uh, bears emerged from the mud and uh, our bones have emerged from the mud. I was going to say, you made it sound extremely dramatic. That would be exciting <laughs> if it, maybe that was the last one still remaining. Um, so that was where a skeleton was found uh, by that utility crew. Um, so that was uh, another place I visited. I went to Lubbock, Texas. Um, that was uh, important to me because that's where um, one of the few associations between people and giant short-faced bears has been found. So um, at a place called Lubbock Lake, there's um, a museum there. They think there's evidence that a leg bone was found that had been broken by somebody over a rock and used to scrape the hide of a mammoth or a mastodon or some other um, species that had been killed there. And so it's important to me to go to that place to know that the bears had been there, known that humans had been um, interacting uh, with bears in some ways. And also one of my favorite places was the La Brea Tar Pits in downtown Los Angeles, uh, which is just such a um, surreal place to go in the heart of L.A., uh, where there's uh, buses going past and Starbucks and all sorts of human development. And right in the middle is this amazing death pit that operated for 50,000 years where animals kept getting stuck in the goo uh, and dying. And it's become one of the uh, best places to find giant short-faced bare bones. There are a lot of great turns of phrase in your book. Your writing is very short and punchy, and I can't write a description without putting at least two adjectives in there. You, you, you're able to describe things without doing that. It's very impressive to me. But there's a short quote in the book that, that stood out to me, and it's, paleontology is hunting without killing. And the reason I bring it up is because in your career as a naturalist and a journalist, what was it like to go looking for something that you knew you actually weren't going to find? I think that's one of the most fascinating thing about reconstructing the past. Um, you know, and one of the things I learned talking to paleontologists and being with them in the field um, and elsewhere is that they are finding scraps and trying to assemble scraps into a story. And that's a lot of what this book ended up being as well, is looking for disparate facts uh, about the giant short-faced bear and trying to understand what the big long-term narrative was for this bear and piecing it together. But I did find myself really wishing to encounter this bear the more I got to know about it. And there was um, something of a grieving process, strange as it is to say, that... Um, that I was on a trail of a, of a bear that no longer existed and trying to look for signs of life from something that was no longer there. And, you know, extinction is like that. We suffer these losses we didn't even know that um, we've lost. And knowing that I was in the place where these bears existed, um, a blink of an eye ago, really, 10,000, 20,000 years ago in the geological sense was just a fleck of time for us. So I had this sense that I was in close proximity with these bears 
Um, they were just here. I felt like I just missed them. I was bummed that uh, I can't see them. And so the next best thing is to try to piece together what their lives were like and who they were. And for me, that was my way of getting as close as I could to them. That was Arizona Spotlight host Mark McLemore talking with Mike Stark about the book Chasing the Ghost Bear on the Trail of America's Lost Super Beast. Our show is a production of AZPM. The music is by Calexico. Jim Blackwood is the production engineer. I'm Christopher Conover. Thanks for listening. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.